America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's keep calm and colorful. Cheesy, cheesy, cheesy. It's keep calm and colorful cheese. Yes, welcome along. I almost feel like I'm in, stuck in a 1970s sitcom right now. Uh, maybe there's a still photograph of me dressed in a robe. Maybe the last stop. Uh, maybe another picture of me with a tassel tie and a cowboy hat on. Uh, a lot of finger pointing. Maybe raising a glass to the camera. Uh, maybe uh, by the pool, sunning my uh, rather white torso as well. Who knows? But welcome along. It's Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. It's episode number 29. And you're very, very welcome to it. Um, a fine autumnal week here in Colorado. Um, and it's lovely, uh, lovely to have you along for this uh, rather ramshackle uh, little ride we like to call the podcast. It's uh, super, super, super to have you here. So anyway, um, in the week, uh, well, it was actually probably a few minutes after I uh, recorded the, the previous podcast, the uh, highly esteemed episode 28 of keep calm and cauliflower cheese. Maybe you should uh, maybe you should take a listen to it. I think it'll I think we'll like it. Um, but uh, soon after that, I was uh, packing some groceries. Right, boy. I highly recommend, by the way, grocery delivery. It saves a lot of time, a lot of hassle, and it's incredibly convenient. And the very nice people drop it at the doorstep. Uh, tip them and then uh, and then you pack it all away. But anyway, I had an absolute disaster when I was uh, when I was packing everything away. From the top shelf, uh, a, a whole bottle of olive oil uh, cascaded from the top of the shelf, uh, hit me on the chest, exploded all over my chest. So I had an oily, uh, uh, oily, uh, olivey substance and liquid uh, coating uh, my rather um, hairy chest. It's, olive oil gets everywhere. Um, it's, Anyway, and it and it fell onto the floor, and um, smashed onto the floor as well. So there was absolutely olive oil in it everywhere, all over my over my jeans, uh, all over my um, pressed white shirt, obviously in butler coat. It was it was um, it was such a mess. Um, but you know, one thing it did do. I mean, it's it's a sort of an odd smell when it's. Uh, all over the floor and all over one's chest. But what it did, and I noticed this, is I thought I need to clean this up. So I put, you know, I got a got a swisher out, swiffer, and I started sweeping the floor, and it and it gave a rather lovely sheen to the floor, absolutely fantastic. And I noticed, I think that you know, where it hit me on the arm. Um, and the neck, I think it gave me a sort of a bronze sort of olive colour, I swear. 
a bronze sort of olive colour. I felt like it was slightly Mediterranean for once in my life, not my usual pale visage. So I highly recommend. I think, you know, I mean, obviously the skin cancer crowd would be uh, aghast. But I wonder by the pool if you, like, you know, covered yourself in olive oil, if uh, if you would get that beautiful, uh, you know, bronze brown colour um, and, and get rid of the white pale uh, pale sort of situation going on. Who knows? But anyway, so that's I, that's what I highly recommend. Olive oil is a pain in the ass because it goes um, it goes everywhere. But at the same time, it does polish the floors and uh, it can get rid of that uh, that sort of white, pale, ghost-like uh, type of thing going on. So some of the things we we'll may or may not be talking about today on the podcast is I actually met Father Christmas, Santa Claus, yesterday. I will uh, be uh, enlightening you, lovely listeners, about that. Um, Tales from my barbershop, possibly a new feature. Um interesting, always an interesting conversation with the barber. Uh, something that I might be doing this weekend, recreating something. Um, and also, um, you know when you finally made it, dot, dot, dot. We'll be uh, exploring that as well. Uh, maybe the weirdest text I sent in the week could be another one. Um, uh, you know, absolutely uh, ram-packed show today. Uh, Too Sexy for Lockdown, Rock and Roll's COVID Rebels Unmasked, Indiana Jones of the Plot World, Battles to Rescue the Species, Clue shows that Leonardo traced Mona Lisa, The King's Head Unearthed on a Site of ancient of an Ancient Abbey, uh, Pots and Pans Protests from Restaurateurs, um, and uh, Only a Plonker Would Call Time on a Sozzled Bonking, uh, that's a rather nice little piece here. Uh, the Royal Ballet's uh, Caesar Corrales and Francesca Haywood, The Real Romeo and Juliet. I think they're actually going to be uh, performing a little bit of ballet in the next few months with a very downsized uh, audience. Uh, Farmers are downsizing turkeys for Christmas. Um, and um, there's a rather lovely article I saw in the Wall Street Journal uh, about uh, the France at time and tourism, uh, tourism forgot. Um, we have our usual features, scallywag darts, where we're delving into some of the most heinous headline crimes around the world, but mostly in the UK. That's where some of the most ridiculous stories come from here. Um, we're also going to be have a fireside ghostly butler tale. Um, we uh, we uh, have another candidate in our historical Tinder a little game that we play every week, and there'll be much uh, more uh, merriment and mirth along the way as well. Uh, so please uh, stick around and enjoy. Yeah, so we also have some of our quotes of the week. This is just the kind of gratuitously, gratuitously personal insult that I've always loved so much when it's done to others. The broadcast appears more than meets a spitting image puppet. Now is not the time for the economics of chicken licking. Andy Halladine, Chief Economist at the Bank of England, looks on the bright side of the trade figures. Boris's idea of fine dining was Pizza Express. The Prime Minister once turned down a homemade risotto for a packet of crisps, says his former girlfriend, Petronella Wyatt. I don't particularly need to see a man dancing with a man. The chat show host, Graham Norton, is gay, says uh, having same-sex couples on Strictly Come Dancing makes making judging impossible. He later, of course, can gladly apologise. The uh, debate was the worst thing I've ever seen. 
uh, and I was in Star Wars Holiday Special. The actor Mark Hamill was unimpressed with the clash between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But one thing that I, I would like to just bring, I mean, we need the 1812 Overture for this. Um, one thing I'd like to bring up, and this is essential, you, you, you know when you finally made it, dot, 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 you know when you finally made it, when someone listens to one's podcast whilst naked in the bath, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know when you've made it, when someone listens to one's podcast whilst being naked in the bath. Soap suds around everything and enjoying the audio delight. And thank you all. Too Sexy for Lockdown, Rock and Roll, COVID Rebels Unmasked. From Right Said Fred, remember that one? I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. It might hurt. Or something along those lines, anyway. To Noel Gallagher, aging musicians aren't just raging against pandemic restrictions, some are even singing about it. Noel Gallagher once said, please don't put your lives in the hand of a rock and roll band, and it seems there was something to it. He recently moaned in a podcast that the masks were pointless in the battle against COVID-19. Maybe he doesn't want to live forever after all. There are many two effing liberties around, uh, and they've been taken away from us, he grumbled. Gallagher is a rock star with no scientific credentials. He's also um, not the latest in aging musicians to speak against policies designed to combat the pandemic. Ian Brown to Van Morrison, these rich men are turning protests up to 11 by rambling tweets and in some cases terrible songs. There is reasonable motive. Live music has been crippled by social distancing. It'll take years to recover. But it does appear that some of these furious artists have spent too much time on the conspiracy fringes. No lockdown, no tests, no tracks, no masks, no vax, tweeted Brown, the former Stone Roses singer. Later, when the NHS tracking and trace app launched, Brown tweeted, I've never downloaded an app on my phone. The post was made by a Twitter app. Um, Brown's new anti-state uh, song, Little Seed, Big Tree, uh, is my estimate the 17th worst thing that's happened during the pandemic. They'll plant a tree, microchip every woman, child and man, a plan to chip us all to have complete control, he sings. Um, remarkably, though, Brown comes across as sane compared to Jim Corr, who was in the band The Cause with his sisters. Um, he's a guitarist in the band with The Cause. Uh, Core is an anti-mask, anti-vaccination, anti-lockdown. He claims that the climate change is a hoax and we've been lied to about 9-11. Core, blimey. Um, anyway, so it seems like, um, you know, being locked down and shut away in solitude is beginning to play with uh, even the most um, creative musical minds there is out there. And it's truly made them insane. And uh, the sooner we get out and playing live music again, I think the better for these people's sanity. Uh, some of them were probably um, on the borderline of insane to begin with, I would say. Indiana Jones of the plant world battles to rescue species. In the age of extinction, there's no better time to be a scientist, says the intrepid botanist, who is in a race against time to find and name the world's plant species before they vanish. In his 40-year-old tracking uh, through jungles, climbing mountains and descending waterfalls in the most inaccessible parts of the planet, Martin Cheek 
has almost found 200 new species of plant, uh, like an Indiana Jones of botany. He's been shot, uh, shot through the knee by gangsters, fled a black mamba. It always reminds me of the crocodile hunter. Got a black mamba between my legs, mate. Um, survived parasitic worms and had more gruesome tropical diseases than you care to mention. There's no scope for relaxing, he said. It's beyond exciting and rewarding to know that you've got the possibility to make a difference. It's a privilege to be alive at this time and to be able to go to the areas that haven't been explored before. Ideal social, social distancing, one would think. With a chance you're going to discover something important and amazing and could be unknown to science and useful to society. And then, like uh, no time in our history of our species, being able to do something about protecting it. I mean, maybe he could find some ancient uh, mumbo-dumbo um, juice from a, um, you know, maybe a long-lost fruit and give it to Donald Trump to, Trump to cure his coronavirus. Who knows? Um, the planet is on the precipice of a sixth mass, mass extinction. Unlike the previous five extinction events, ice, asteroids, volcanoes are responsible for wiping out at least half of life. This time humanity is to blame. A senior botanist in the identification and naming department of the Royal Botanic Gardens is, is, to, is able to find a catalogue of plant species which were previously unknown to science, work out which could potentially provide food, medicine and timber, and also try to persuade governments and mining and logging companies not to destroy the habitats where they live. He was among the scientists who last year discovered um, um, it was 1,942 new plant species and 1,886 new species of fungi. It's amazing because they do have a, like a doomsday vault with all of these different uh, species and plants and um, uh, DNA matchups and all of this um, that's in a sort of doomsday vault just in case there is a mass extinction event. Um, so I guess cheeks behind, uh, uh, you know, I guess stocking up the fridge, stocking up the vault just in case there is um, an awful extinction event or something along those lines. But he is the uh, Indiana Jones of botany. So clue shows Leonardo traced the Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa has been scrutinized so often that it seemed that she has no more secrets to give up. But analysis of deposits beneath the surface has uncovered a previously unknown drawing, a clue about how Leonardo da Vinci created the masterpiece. Researchers used the latest high-resolution cameras to detect light beyond the visible spectrum to identify materials left by Leonardo when he painted the portrait in the first years of the 16th century. Near the surface of the popular wood panel beneath numerous layers of paint were black spots of charcoal that run along the outlines of the finished painting. These spots are called spolaveri, proof that Leonardo first drew his portrait on paper and used a pin to make holes through the lines in a process similar to tracing. It's similar to what I did at school with crepe paper. Who knows, I could have been a Leonardo da Vinci or painted the Sistine Chapel or something along those lines. He placed the paper cartoon on the panel and dabbed charcoal across the holes, causing it to outline to appear. The discovery showed that another version of Mona Lisa existed on paper before it was actually put into, uh, into paint and onto the canvas. So it's, it's fascinating to me because people always said, well, why wasn't the Mona Lisa smile, smiling? Why was she so demure? I mean, especially that he traced it out. Um, uh, you would have thought he may have had second thoughts and thought, you know what, I'm going to give her a rather cheeky grin. We do love our monarch news on Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, and one of our favourites uh, has been unearthed again. King's Head unearthed 
and unearthed on site of ancient abbey. A 700-year-old carved stone head, believed to be of Edward II, has been discovered on the former site of an abbey. The carving is thought to have been part of the previously unknown gallery of statues of kings and queens inside Shaftesbury Abbey in Dorset. It offers an archaeologist a glimpse of what might be the interior of the abbey, which was built by Alfred the Great in the 9th century, before the abbey was destroyed in the Reformation. The team of archaeologists and students on the dig, funded by the National Lottery, were thrilled when they discovered the life-size head, which bears a crown marking it as a royal. It was in remarkable condition. Its nose and jaw were damaged. Julian Richards, who led the dig, said Edward II, who raged from 1307 to 1327, and he was the one who died with a red-hot poker up his ass. Uh, the significant thing is that he was wearing a crown, so it's a royal figure. The quality of the carving is stunning. You can see his eyelids. It's slightly battered around the face as it's been deliberately defaced. Well, forget his face. What happened to his poor ass with the poker going up it? So, pots and pan protest from restaurateurs. Restaurateurs in France and their staff stood still in front of their restaurants in Paris, wearing black armbands and banging pots and pans, urging the French government uh, not to order tighter restrictions. Olivier Varane, the health minister, said on Thursday the Paris region was set to be placed on the maximum COVID alert and a lot of the restaurants can be shut again. I think we actually need, because, I mean, this is obviously the, the main, one of the main industries that's hurting a lot. Culture, the arts, theatre, movie theatre is obviously hurting as well. Uh, restaurants, though, are being crushed at the moment. So I think we need our, uh, we need our very own uh, pots and pans celebration here. We're going to have a minute of just banging our pots and pans in celebration of the restaurant industry. Give me a croque monsieur, give me a croque monsieur, give me a roast chicken, how about a creme brulee? Sticky toffee pudding, spotted dick. There we go. So that's our little uh, ode to restaurants and how much we love them and how much we adore them. And we need to keep them open. So it's actually getting to that time of year. Uh, what are we, 70 days away from Christmas, which is my favorite time of year, the most beautiful time of the year. Um, I'm always, as I said on a previous podcast, I'm always looking for ways in to star in a Hallmark holiday movie. Um, I don't know if I'd be the lead romantically, potentially, but maybe I could be the slightly eccentric uncle. I could be a butler to maybe the romantic lead um, who introduces some um, wonderful American damsel in distress to the lord of the manor. Um, there's many things. Maybe I could, uh, you know, be the snowplow guy um, who, you know, moved over from... Uh, boarding school straight to Vale or something is now, you know, ploughing the roads and, uh, and, and meet a rather lovely, slightly crestfallen lady who may have broken up with somebody and has a child or something along those lines. Anyway, I, I don't think uh, writing these Hallmark holiday movies is in, my, is in my future, but who knows. But anyway, so the, any, one of the most wonderful things I saw probably in a few months here and heard of was yesterday. 
So I think we have to get a little bit into the mood here of the occasion. Um, I think we need to fire up the fireplace and maybe the uh, blizzard as well. So just imagine the fire blazing and you've got the uh, blizzard in the background here. Maybe the shutters cascading and crashing open and back and forth, open and shut. Just imagine a beautiful Christmas tree as well. Maybe a, a slightly, uh, slightly, slightly off the boil uh, Irish coffee. You can smell that Bailey's maybe in the top, or maybe a dash of Jameson's in the top. Anyway, so here we, this is what we have. So yesterday, I was uh, I was taking an Uber, and I met Father Christmas, or Santa Claus, Father Christmas. I, I prefer Father Christmas, and. You know, he was a little off course, there's no doubt about that, but he, he was an Uber driver. And he was telling me, um, very nice gentleman, probably in his 60s or 70s, and he told me that he's going to be spending November and December at Macy's in California. Uh, he goes out there every year to uh, Macy's in Ca one of the cities, maybe San Diego. And um, he showed me pictures of him as Santa Claus. And he could have been off Miracle of 34th Street, or Richard Attenborough in the, in the, in the, in the, in the remade version in 1994. He was the epitome of Santa Claus. And it warmed my October heart. It literally warmed my October heart to see a gentleman who's going, he's Uber driving for a living, very chatty, um, wonderful conversationalist. But for November and December, he's going out to California to become the store Santa. I think in, 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 in an ode to him and a, and a hats off to him, we do need some of uh, Santa's Christmas sleigh bells. So this is an ode to uh, our dear friend, Santa the Uber driver, who I met yesterday, a wonderful, wonderful little chap. It makes me want to read The Night Before Christmas right now. Ho, ho, ho. So, I uh, read a paper survey um, in the newspapers that found that people under 30 haven't a clue what we mean when we talk about cads or bonking or being sozzled. Quentin Letts, an enthusiastic employer of arcane vocabulary, was invited to discuss his own favourites uh, on Times Radio. Um, and uh, we're talking about preserving some of these words and some of the words that are worthy of pre uh, preservation in the dictionary. Um, then we have impedimenta. Impedimenta is a very good word for all the clutter that women take around in their handbags. Um, so, you know, handbags full of stuff. We're not talking about the male merce, though. Um, and, um, and then, obviously, we have one of the words which are going out of fashion is the word bonk. It was first recorded as a meaning to have sex in 1975. It is now apparently defunct, suggesting that language might be changing faster than one would, uh, than one would actually fit, think. And also, um, sozzled. Um, if you try to type in sozzled into your phone, it comes out sizzled. Uh, sozzled, um, also besozzled, sizzled, sozzled, sozzled-eyed. Uh, first comes uh, into play in 1883, and it means he was seldom downright, downright drunk, uh, but he was a little sizzled, therefore sozzled. So these are words that are 
sadly going out of fashion. So bonking's going out of fashion, hopefully not literally. Um, and uh, sozzled is going out of fashion as well. And we also learned uh, what a what the massive uh, undescribables in the ladies' handbag would mean as well. I mean, it's pretty sad, really, that these words are being lost. Um, I mean, it almost comes from a Jilly Cooper novel. That you know, so there's people under thirty claiming they've never heard of some of these words. So, Randy, Sozzle, Cad, and Bonk. Um, I mean, young people probably don't haven't even bought like a red top. Um, has uh, anybody in real life ever said that copulating couples frolicked or romped? And then there's no quips or quas. I think this is like the essence of my podcast here. Bygone age, nookie, tot, mercy dash, and then never been bedded by a love rat. I mean, I, I, I think that I'm being... I'm, I think this podcast is probably being pushed towards the confines of the Antique Roadshow. That's, uh, that, that's, that's what I have to expect here. Because this is uh, quiff, quaff, toff, bonking... Sozzled. I'm, I'm going to start weeping soon that we're going to be losing these rather descriptive, wonderful words. We need to put it. We need to put a. We need to put a stop to it, without a doubt. So it's very fashionable in podcasts these days for like self-help, learning new skills, positivity, and we, you know, we try to uh, inject positivity through humor and ridiculousness on this podcast. But you know what? Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to dip my toe into the uh, new life skills uh, little pond here, maybe a babbling brook. Um, and uh, over the course of the next few weeks, if I remember, because of course it is a bit ramshackle, this podcast, and we do have no structure, and sometimes we do forget. Um, but over the coming weeks, we're going to have a couple of these. So this week, we're going to have uh, de-stress in under one minute, Position both hands in front of your face as if you were giving two thumbs up, not an up your sign. Turn your thumbs horizontally and place them on either side of the bridge of your nose, just beneath your brow bone. Press firmly. Count slowly for eight to ten seconds and breath. Reposition your thumbs slightly above the outside ends of your each eyebrow. Place your index fingers about two to three centimeters above your thumbs, slightly towards each other, and gently squeeze. Count slowly for eight to ten seconds. Breathe. Carry on whatever you were doing. Do you feel better? So try that. And uh, of course, very important, very important with winter coming, the chilly weather coming, the uh, the turtleneck weather coming. Um, and then maybe the uh, thermal long johns and underwear. Thermal underwear is coming. But how do you start a fire? How do you keep yourself warm? By Bear Grylls. The secret of making a good fire lies in remembering the fire triangle. Not the love triangle, the fire triangle. Heat, oxygen, and fuel. And understanding that combustion won't occur until you've raised your fuel to the correct temperature. Good materials for tinder... Not the website, not swiping left or right, none of that when it comes to uh, lighting a fire. Include dry grass, pine cones, birch bark, cotton wool, the insides of tampons, used or, uh, or, or, or unused, mm. or abandoned and empties bird nests. If you see good tinder, grab it and stash it and keep it dry. Ideally, you'll have waterproof matches. 
who carries waterproof matches? What? How? How? How do they work? Um, ideally, you have these and use them to light your tinder. Once your tinder is ignited, you still need to keep things small because there won't be enough heat to ignite the large pieces of fuel. This is the kindling stage. Think dry leaves and small twigs. As dry as possible, twigs should snap easily. Add them gradually to the flame, making sure you don't smother it and starve it from oxygen. So anyway, that's what we have this week. Uh, next week, maybe patch a small hole in the wall, sit properly and save your back, set yourself up for a good night's sleep, make changes in your life and stick to them. That's what we have, and maybe how to pickle cucumbers. Anyway, thank you very much, and uh, we'll have more of that next week. So I, I often look at oneself or myself, oneself, pretty critically. And I realized on Saturday morning um, that this fashion-forward butler was uh, sitting reclined in, in, in pink shorts, slightly tied, as, as I like them, with long grey socks with English red post boxes on them, care of the wonderful sock company Carnaby Street, which is beautiful, they make beautiful socks. But I thought, how fashion forward am I being with my long socks pulled up, English post boxes on them. I do have some with bulldogs on actually as well, and the pink shorts. I thought, ooh la la, it was the pièce de résistance in fashion. So I absolutely love going to see my barber. It's one of the most wonderful things. It's very relaxing. Love the hot towel. Love the neck shaved. Um, and love a love an actual um, wet shave when I when I have a chance to. It's 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 uh, it's very fabulous indeed. So anyway, my barber and I came up with a brilliant new invention yesterday. Um, it's clippers taped to a stick to manscape a hairy back. Get the foam on and hey presto. Because, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I may have short arms and long pockets. Who knows? But it's trying to reach that, you know, you know, as a man who's out there trying to impress, uh, you know, on, on, on the dating scene, one needs to be able to, you know, trim, trim the back hair. And I don't know if this is a 40-year-old man thing. I don't know if some of those younger Adonises in their 20s have back hair issues. But seriously, get a stick, get some like masking tape or, or thick tape and tape this clippers to the stick and then you can reach almost to the never regions. I think it solves all sorts of things. Put the foam on because you'll cut yourself up if not. Um, but the, but the, the barber... Uh, you know, said he, he wanted to see pictures of my hairy back. I thought this was a slightly creepy and uh, an odd, unusual request, uh, you know, from him. <laughs> I add, I add, it's a him. Um, I mean, d a question out there to you, the listeners, is, is do some people have a sort of hairy back fetish? Not really my cup of tea or coffee or cordial or anything. Um, but anyway... A question out there to you, does anybody out there have a hairy back fetish? If so, answers on a postcard, please, to Chappie Towers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, hello. We have a little bit of the enigmatic English eccentrics now. So, this is a feature that we've really bumbled on along about 
um, the last few weeks here. And uh, this week we have um, the inimitable, inimitable Lord Rokuby. The mark of an eccentric is often the enthusiasm they have for a certain personal belief. Matthew Robinson's second Baron Rockaby developed a fondness for all things watery. At a time when drinking water could somewhat be risky due to waterbone disease, most people drank alcoholic beverages instead. Rockaby drank only water or beef tea. I mean, God knows, beef dripping in the tea sounds absolutely awful. Each day he would walk to the beach and swim to the sea until exhausted. While Lord Rockaby would walk, he followed by carriage and servants. Often he would swim to the point of collapse and have to be dragged from the sea. The risks of his obsession with the sea finally convinced him to construct a swimming pool on the estate. While wallowing for hours in the water, he would often be accompanied by a joint of roast veal floating alongside him. So it was a flotation for a device like our man's or uh, floaties to, to hang on to. Be, he was hanging on to his piece of meat, I guess, uh, which he would snatch bites from as he swam along. So he was nibbling his, uh, his floaty, so to speak. Rockaby, a new aquatic lifestyle, seemingly did him no harm as he lived to be 88 years old, nibbling on his veal as he swam along. Who would know? Who would have thunk it? Well, welcome along, ladies and gentlemen, to our little game of historical Tinder. All right, so today's contestant is uh, Ludwig II. One of Bavaria's most beloved and eccentric monarchs was Ludwig II, who became famous for his strange personality and his obsession with building enchanting and whimsical castles. Ludwig had a troubled family life. And as a child, he would lose himself in arts, music, and elaborate fantasy worlds. This behavior carried over into his reign as king, which began when he was only 18. He dis disliked public appearances, preferring instead to stay inside. And in his castle alone, where he would frequently have operas and plays performed for only him. This is not to say that Ludwig was sh shut him. He was known to travel around Bavaria and would even stop and chat with any subjects he met along the way. The king's unassuming nature earned him the adoration of the people, but it drew the ire of his high-ranking court employees who planned to have him removed from power. The conspirators provided a list of Ludwig's eccentricities, among them talking to imaginary uh, people, poor manners, shyness, and even a penchant for moonlight picnics with naked male dancers, uh, and he used them as proof that the king was insane. While the veracity of these claims is undebatable, in uh, 1886 Ludwig was declared unfit for rule and removed from power. In a mysterious twist, the king was found floating dead in the lake the very next day, thought he was murdered by his rivals. So I think we have a clear definition here. Uh, in historical tinder, the uh, axe or sword or some fate worse than death either swings to the right or the left or maybe they suffer a rather little love potion and has some uh, a bit of bookie and how's the father um but in this case um i think if we're looking at ludwig if we're looking at ludwig this, this is this is probably you know what happened to dear ludwig um here we go that was uh that was ludwig here he is that's him uh, 
that's him falling uh, falling into the uh, as him falling into the uh, into the into the sea um, or the little pond or lake. Oh Ludwig, poor old uh, poor poor old uh, poor old Ludwig, poor old Ludwig. Ah. So welcome along to another fireside butler ghostly tale. Warm your hands against the hearth. Pour yourself a little nip of scotch to calm the nerves. Today's fireside ghost story is Castle Rising Castle. The imposing Norman castle was built in 1150 onto ramparts that had probably been constructed by the Romans. In 1330, Edward III sent his mother, Queen Isabella, to live there in unofficial imprisonment for a part in the savage murder of her husband, Edward II. She lived in relative comfort to begin with, and then the she-wolf's mind gave way, and she degenerated into insanity and became a gibbering, screaming, cackling wreck. Although she drew her last tortured breath over 600 years ago, her raucous cackle and maniacal ghostly laughter are still heard echoing from a room on the upper levels of the castle, and they are loud enough to send a cold chill racing down the spine of those who happen to hear them. Hello, welcome along to some scary weird darts. So we look at the most heinous headline crimes and try to equate them to a game of darts, missing the board, triple 20, bullseye, and Chuppu's special prize. Okay, so missing the board uh, this week, uh, we have a, a lovely little piece here. Firefighters called for university house to rescue student trapped in a tumble dryer. A student was left red-faced after a drunken challenge left her calling for emergency help when she realised she was stuck inside a tumble dryer and unable to move. Well, I know that student accommodation uh, was tight, but that is absolutely ridiculous. It's rare for students to get that close to a laundromat. I always, uh, or I always uh, thought that my undercrackers would self-clean after a couple of days and being turned inside out. Um, anyway, I mean, they could have a student special night of one spin for one dollar or something along those lines, definitely. So that's, uh, that's, uh, Muslim the board this week. Um, and then we have, uh, we would have our triple 20 this week. Uh, mum let, left red faced after accidentally ordering rude pepper pig plate for a toddler. Maggie Van Alec bought dinner set for a two-year-old daughter, but was left shocked after he accidentally ordered it from France, which had a rude word printed on the plates and cups. Um, so, uh, this could be a sort of lost in translation type of thing. It's almost similar to what a fanny pack means in the UK um, and in the US, and it's, it's definitely a crime against fashion, wherever else you are other than the US. But look it up, fanny pack. And then we have our uh, bullseye of the week here. Uh, Marks and Spencer shoppers convinced stores Harry Potter chocolate one looks very, very, very wrong. 
So, photos of a new chocolate Harry Potter range at Marks and Spencer's have been shared online for shoppers who were distracted by the five-pound five chocolate wand that was included in the section. Let's say it's very long, very thick, and very bulbous uh, in, in, in terms of the wand. It looks like it might have been a special evil Slytherin power wand. Um, it seems like Harry does have a size of the wand that might take your eye out and cause a uh, pronounced scar. And uh, we have Choppy's special prize. Mutant two-headed snake slivers into grandmother's home uh, through door left open. Jenny Wilson was uh, home with her family when a two-headed rattlesnake slithered into her home after the door was less open. It's a rare discovery that affects just one in a hundred thousand snakes. Um, it could have been worse. It could have been a two-eyed snake, probably last seen on our wedding night many moons ago. Um, and then uh, some of the uh, some of the pieces that didn't make uh, the cut this week. Um, we uh, we have a, a preserved uh, Richard Nixon sandwich. Um, man kept Richard Nixon sandwich for over 60 years. Um, so a man in Illinois kept a sandwich that Vice President Richard Nixon half ate in September 1960. Steve Jen, a teen then, grabbed the sandwich when Nixon visited his hometown. I looked around and thought, if no one else is going to take it, I'm going to take it. Jen has since written a book about the sandwich and has been uh, interviewed on the uh, on the, the night show. Apparently, the sandwich was preserved in the famous Richard Nixon sweat and uh, came along with a side of missing tapes and Watergate waffle fries. And finally, uh, man's pet geese come with him to the pub wearing special nappies. A man has adopted two pet geese during lockdown and has started taking them to his local pub wearing nappies, diapers, uh, for our American friends. Uh, Sven Kirby is uh, regularly spotted walking the birds named Norbert and Beep Beep around the streets of Leeds and the old trio have now branched out into socialising into their local pub. Um, so definitely the luck of the goose. Christmas is coming around the corner and the goose isn't getting fat because it's actually taking 10,000 steps a day. These geese will be too skinny. They'll have to be a Bob Cratchit Christmas Carol goose. There'll be uh, no breasts to go breast side up. And uh, very, very sorry, Chappie is rather non-vegan friendly today. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast, episode 29. Chappie is saying out uh, very, very soon. Um, you can catch up Twitter, at Keith Cheese. You can uh, see me on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Amazon Music. So all of the platforms. So please join me again um, very, very soon. So we're not going to finish with a poem today, but we're going to take a piece that was written in the London Times, Stig Abel, um, who's a writer and broadcaster on Autumn. Trees changing colours recall life and death, hope and loss. No season better reflects the human condition. I have a theory you can judge a person's character by their favourite season. Those who pick summer are hedonists, drawn to the tingling, easily sated pleasures of the body. People who choose spring are a bit obvious, sentimental, driven by the need to seek renewal amid change. Winter, however, is for the modern masochistic who take pleasure in the contrast of cold and coziness. Autumn is unquestionably the season for realists, like me. It carries with it the feeling of resource and generosity, tainted with a balanced incentive of mortality. It represents both waxing and waning, the astronomical year coming to a close, but the school year starting. April's were never meant much to me, said Truman Capote. Autumn seemed that 
seasons are beginning, spring, the best sport is played in autumn, the robust vigour of rugby union and football arrive to the, drive out the flannelled uh, maunderings of the cricket season. Uh, autumn itself is not as old as you might think. In pre-medieval periods, there are really two seasons, winter and not winter. Life was built around working hard during the latter to ensure you survive the former. Our word summer comes from uh, Sanskrit's word for half, denoting, it, denoting its status as the other main part of the year. By the 16th century, the concept of spring had widely become used and created its own uh, autonom, which is fall. For a while, it looked like we would uh, use the term before the Latinate autumn took over. But Britons have already crossed to America, taking the word fall with them. Leaves and their falling are central to the season's iconography. Um, as we were probably taught at school, leaves change colour as they stop pr uh, producing the green pigment chlorophyll, um, which is broken down into other compounds as temperatures drop. Carinoid pigments of uh, orange and yellow then shine through, and some plants produce the pigment that you get elsewhere, like in raspberries, and they turn the leaves deep red. What is enhancing is the creativity. Such profusion happens as life is ebbing away. Autumn is the season of life's pyrrhic victory. Its charms, its chills, its rotting softness uh, inextricably linked to the sense of demise. For that reason, painfully, literally, that season, Jane Austen puts it, which is drawn from every poet worthy of being read some attempt at description or some lines of feeling. There is plenty of bountiful versifying about the bright colours and liberal harvest that is well to listen to the quiet sounds of distant too. Keats is famous for describing autumn as seasons of mists and mellow fruitfulness, but read his poem again and you glimpse the mortality in that soft dying day and hear the small gnats mourn in a wayful choir. Keats died at 25. Uh, Robert Frost wrote about November and his own sense of sorrow. When she's here with me, thinks these dark days of autumn rain are beautiful as days can be. Beauty and sorrow mixed together, the intermingled tangs of life and death, imagined opportunity and expected decay. What's not to love about all of that? So anyway, it is chappy out, but I, I was just thinking, you know, about what I may do this weekend or until we meet again. Um, I think I'm going to spend the weekend and possibly all of next week creating memorable scenes from Titanic. I need a pool deck. A ship's hull from whence I can shout, I'm on top of the world! And a car with steamy windows and someone to paint me just wearing a pearl necklace, obviously with broad brushstrokes. Good night, everybody.